Laura Shahood, and I am a third year EM resident here at St. Mary Mercy in Livonia, Michigan. And today we are speaking with one of our attendings, Dr. Dan Keyes, on our podcast that we so affectionately call the Case Cast. Good morning, uh, Dr. Shahood. Thank you. Welcome. Um, so I guess we'll just talk kind of in general. We're talking about trauma and resuscitation. So can you just walk us through, have you had any good memorable resuscitations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this uh, I can tell you about a case. Actually, it's not specifically trauma, but since we're talking about uh, resuscitation, uh, I'll tell you about this one. It's actually a medical arrest. But um, So this is a case that I want to share with you. It's a 67-year-old male. He was in our emergency department uh, because he had had a seizure episode or uh, something like that that was very poorly described. He was in a regular patient room. But all of a sudden, he became disoriented and actually was not very responsive. Uh, I think actually after he had been moved to the x-ray suite, they would discover this. And so when they, they called the nurse in, she saw immediately that there was, uh, the patient was not really responding very well, so they moved the patient into a resuscitation suite. Um, there were no pulse, there was no pulse palpable at all, so CPR was initiated. And as soon as we got him on a monitor, uh, we saw V-fib. So uh, in rapid succession, we, we gave uh, uh, shock to the patient uh, and initiated ACLS, basically. You know, we went through the usual sequence. We did compressions. Uh, I think we shocked a total of three times. Uh, we kept getting recurrent ventricular fibrillation. Um, and of course, we were giving epinephrine at regular intervals. And, and ultimately, we gave some amiodarone as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, we might have proceeded with uh, the well-known, I think, uh, discussed in a previous podcast of a dual axis shock, which is yeah, that's a pretty interesting <laughs> interesting topic, topic, especially for refractory VFib. So, could you elaborate a little bit on the approach to that? Well, of course, I can uh, go ahead uh, and talk a little bit about. It. Of course, I would quote your paper on the topic, uh, but uh, basically, uh, you have if you have refractory ventricular fibrillation. Uh, if you've gone through three cycles and and you just and you're unsuccessful with that, you can try to proceed with a dual axis defibrillation. It's, this is not something that's proven, but it's, it's something that's based on a theoretical concept of electrical storm, a sympathetic storm, uh, and one can try to uh, give dual axis uh, defibrillation, and, and what you do is you basically put it in an additional defibrillator in a, in a, in a different axis, and in fact, your article actually illustrates that very well. I'll refer the listeners to that um, in Western Journal of Medicine. Uh, but uh, you give a simultaneous uh, shock, and if necessary, you proceed with giving in esmolol, uh, which can be given in bolus and then followed by a drip, mm -hmm. and then repeat shock. And I know in your case that the person woke up and, and was successful. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, we didn't get to that point because after the second shock uh, and continued the compressions, when we checked again, the patient was in asystole. So he was no longer a candidate for this. Uh, and we were continuing. This person was only 67 years old and actually had very few comorbidities as we found out that time was going on. We're looking at his chart, learning more about him. And we actually had a family member that could give us some information. Uh, in fact, I should mention that we, uh, during the course of this resuscitation, we brought the spouse in the, into the uh, suite. And she actually was able to watch uh, some of the things that were going on. Uh, as we proceeded. Do you routinely bring family into the resuscitation bay to watch a recess? We do. We really like to do that. I personally, as an attending, like to bring the family in. I try to in most of my resuscitations. This is something that's become much more popular across the United States. Um, there, uh, it's actually interesting, uh, the podcast is here from Michigan. The first per person to describe this was Connie Doyle, 
Dr. Connie Doyle, who's over at uh, St. Joseph Mercy Hospital. I think she just retired, but back in 1987, she first described using this. And since then, uh, it's become quite widespread across the United States. Uh, there's actually a, uh, an interesting study out of France where they did, uh, they compared p family members, uh, they randomly assigned family members to either receive, to be invited for bedside observation of resuscitation or not. And the outcome that they were looking at was post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and interestingly, after following these patients up, I think you had 570 patients across multiple centers, uh, they found that there was actually a protective effect of watching the resuscitation. It was an uh, odds ratio of 1.7. They actually did better if the family was in the suite watching the resuscitation. Interesting. I was not aware of that. Right. Well, uh, this, in this case, we, we had someone in there. I think what we try to do, and there's different ways of doing this family presence uh, approach, is you, you should probably have somebody there talking to them, giving them a little bit of guidance. Obviously, they don't, most, in most cases, are not familiar with this kind of a setting. It's kind of scary, obviously. Uh, but uh, you can have somebody explaining to them what's going on in the room, answering their questions. Uh, we, you can assign a staff member to do that, and, and our, I like to just, if, if I have a, uh, you know, usually a senior resident running the case, uh, and we try to use a team approach here where everybody's communicating through the leader in our resuscitations. Don't always succeed in that, but that's our goal. But anyway, if that's taking place, then I feel as an attending, I can explain things to the family member and, and help them out with that as well. That sounds like a really good approach, especially explaining to someone who's non medical personnel sort of what's going on so that they're understanding all the interventions because things seem, seem to happen simultaneously during resuscitation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really makes a lot of sense to have that. Those kind of details certainly haven't been worked out in an evidence-based fashion, but it really seems to, at least with this new study, uh, to make a difference. Well, this patient, unfortunately, did not survive. We, as you know, in most cases, they systole, as you know, survival is, is dismal. It's very poor. We're still, I you know, like to say, we're still in the dark ages when it comes to treatment of cardiac arrest. Um, we went for a total of, I think, almost an hour, right? 45, 50 minutes, maybe even <coughs> close to an hour. Uh, the patient was young, didn't have very many comorbidities. Uh, I say relatively young, 67, I mean, for cardiac arrest. So we went all the way and just we weren't successful. I remember, you know, we looked around, said, does anybody else have any other ideas? I'm sure all of your listeners have had this experience. Nobody in the room said they, they had one. And so we called the code right there with, with a family member present. And so uh, at that point, we, we had to take the, the you know, spouse out for a few minutes while they prepared things. And we sat down and we talked. We had to talk about this experience with the, with the spouse. What's your general approach to explaining, whether it's a spouse or a family member that's been present in the room versus somebody who's not been present? How do you approach explaining that their loved one has died? Well, it's interesting you ask a question about comparing those who've been in the room and haven't. I, I don't have enough experience to really comment on the differences. <clears throat> I, I think in general, uh, it seems to be beneficial in this article that I mentioned earlier talks about them maybe it's a process of working through the loss of their loved one the death you know which is obviously a tremendous shock for everyone uh, but but they actually are have more closure and they're able to work through it more if they've actually seen all of the efforts uh, but I'm sure many of our listeners uh, have their own approaches to in general how you tell somebody that they've lost someone a loved one uh, some people call this death telling uh, it's you know never you know particularly easy. I think everybody has their own approach. Uh, I'll tell you mine, and I'm sure any yours or anyone else's is just as valid. I 
I like to get to the point. I, I don't like to beat around the bush. I like to, you know, let them, you know, if they haven't been in the resuscitation, say that uh, they, the, their loved one died. Uh, some, uh, you can say passed away, died. I, I don't know that one's better than the other as long as they clearly understand that you mean that the patient died. Um, and then I, I like to back up after that and, and build up to it you know, and say what happened along the way. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, we tried everything we possibly could. Uh, if they've been there, they said, you can tell them, you, as you saw, we tried everything we possibly could, and we don't ever usually go this long. But because he was young and he was relatively healthy, we went the extra mile because we just didn't want to give up with him. You know, convincing the patient that you really did your best. And, uh, and then let them ask any questions. They often, they'll have a question about, you know, well, what, what was this about? Why did you do that? Or, or, or if they weren't there, you know, what you did. Um, and finally, I will... Uh, I always try this really hard. Uh, you know, I try to encourage them to reach out if they're there alone. <clears throat> sometimes people have family members with them, and that's a little bit different. Oftentimes, though, these people come with one family member, and so I'll encourage them to make that phone call, uh, get somebody else on board. I always tell them, don't try to do this yourself. Uh, you know, you occasionally have patients who don't seem to be feeling the the hurt yet. And I warn them that, you know, this may hit you later. Mm -hmm. uh, you may not feel it right up front, but, you know, try to get them ready for it. Another thing to do in most institutions, and certainly in ours, we have a chaplaincy. You can bring the chaplain down, get them involved. You know, there are all these kind of routine, mundane things that have to happen, you know, taking the patient to a morgue and, you know, uh, the patient, I should say, the deceased uh, patient. Um, and so uh, you can get them involved. And they're also, you know, quite adept in many cases at consolation and uh, helping that patient for the next step. The, not the patient, but the family member. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like a really good approach to informing the family. I agree with the just kind of cut to the chase. That way you don't leave them hanging to figure out right. what exactly mm -hmm. the end outcome was, and then mm -hmm. allowing them to ask questions, I think, gives them good closure. Um, better, yeah. So we really appreciate your advice and your discussion today. Um, sure, thanks so much well. for coming on the, the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Cool. Have you it. back. Thanks. All right. <laughs> <laughs>